Okay. All right, well, we're going to start here. So as you all know, we're in the, the Patterns of Community Life course. And we're going to talk about the Lord's Day tonight. <clears throat> this is a, a pretty wide-ranging talk, so you're going to got to be kind of adi- adept and stick with me here uh, as we, we kind of move. There's a lot of backstory with this one. So uh, hopefully you can stick with me. All right, I'll start by saying that early on in the Covenant Community Movement, and at periods along the way, what time is it, by the way? 40, 50, 40, 50. Great. So, uh, early on in the movement, and at different times along the way, the Lord has been uh, pretty consistent with a prophetic word to us as a movement, saying things, saying something like, uh, kind of speaking to the body of people, that I have called you to restore much that has been lost. That was, it was a foundational word originally when this movement began, and the Lord has continued that periodically. Uh, this particular word, this foundational word, went on to speak about some specific things that the Lord wanted to restore. Things like, Life and the spiritual gifts, evangelism, family life, life in the Holy Spirit. And the Lord, in addition to that, just to, to keep us grounded, he reminds us regularly that he's the one that's doing the restoring. Right? This isn't our work to restore. We're simply responding to the grace and what he has to offer us. So the Lord is doing the restoring, the Lord is doing the building, the Lord is doing the repairing. But as we've even heard, the Lord has been speaking the word to us that we have a role to play in that. So we live in a period of history, I don't think anyone would disagree, we live in a period of history where there has been and there still is a great deal of change occurring. Occurring on a number of fronts, whether that's technological or demographic or economic or educational changes in fundamental patterns of life, what it means to be married, what it means to be a family, changes in what people understand morality to mean. And when living in a time like this, it can be a little bit disorienting. So we're living in a changing of the ages. And one period of history is is dying and it's passing away. And there's another period that's being born. The church has been through a lot of these. This isn't something new. It's not surprising. The uh, The church has been through many of these periods before. And one key thing is that Christians of that age... Find ways to bring the truths of the faith from one age that's passing to the new age that's coming about. So some examples you've heard uh, often uh, in different talks like this, but you know you hear about the monastic movement in the <clears throat> in the fifth century, desert fathers, right? These desert hermit men, Saint Benedict, right? They came forward and. Uh, preserve something as 
the culture in which we knew it in the Roman Empire was going down the tubes and going fast. The mendicant movement in the 11th and 12th centuries, the springing forth of uh, religious life and the Dominicans and the Franciscans and the Augustinians and the Carmelites, right? Uh, focus on a refocus on mission and prayer, uh, preserving the life of the church and protecting it. Uh, during the 16th century, we have the Counter-Reformation, right? An age of mission. The Jesuits were born and they went about the world uh, speaking the truth and spreading the gospel, missionary zeal. And these renewal movements acted in those times like a bridge between one age and the next. And over these bridges, the central truths of the faith were passed. Again, I think you would agree that in these times of transition, these times of change, there's a lot of challenge that comes about. There's different currents and forces and dynamics at work, pushing people this way and that. There's some different responses that we can make kind of on both ends of the spectrum. We can say things like, when we talk about this bridge from, from one age to the next, we can say, might, might see people that say, no, we're not changing anything. All right, we're taking, we're taking everything as it is right now. And, and I, so I guess that means it's all coming over the bridge, right? There's no change whatsoever. We're keeping it like it is. And then on the other end of the spectrum, hey, it's a new age. We're changing everything, right? Everything gets tossed aside. Nothing comes over the bridge except me because it's a new age. And the key for us as Christians is to understand, to figure out, to respond to the Lord, what actually does need to go over, right? Are we in a situation, really, where either nothing goes over or everything goes over? It's somewhere in the middle, right? We need to be adaptable. We need to be able to respond to what the Lord is doing, uh, respond to what he is doing in a new age. So kind of the middle ground between... Oh, nothing's changing. We're staying the way it is and deal with it to we're throwing it all out. So Paul has some things to say about this. He's speaking to the early Christians in Rome. In the 12th chapter of Romans, he says, don't let, this is a great translation. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you can discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's a great translation. Getting squeezed into the mold of the world. Oh, there's four seats right here in the front. How about that? Come on in. Look at that. Yeah, right there. And two right over here. Come on in. So what Paul's saying here is that we need to have insight into what's true, what is good, and what's acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. Having our minds renewed is partly a matter of understanding the truth of what God has revealed, and it's partly a matter of knowing how to apply that to the particular situation that we're in. So having insight into God's purpose and his plan, and having wisdom to know how to live out that insight. 
So what Paul's saying here is, you, you actually got to think about this. All right? You have to think. You have to apply your minds. You have to apply uh, what the Lord has done in your heart and apply it to the situation. Don't just simply get squeezed into the mold that the world has for you. All right. That was the first backdrop. Now we're going to talk about a foundational set of truths about God's plan and purpose called the Ten Commandments. And in particular one, we're going to talk about the third commandment. I think it would be fair to say that uh, of the Ten Commandments, most of them in the culture in which we live are, at the very least, questioned. Uh, Some have caused and cause a great deal of controversy when it comes to uh, sexuality, morality, marriage, uh, related to who we are, God himself, right? There is some commandments, and this one in particular, that don't get a lot of thought this, this day in which we live. Uh, it's not really even on people's radar screens when we talk about keeping holy the Sabbath. What, that doesn't even register for most people. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Again, early in the covenant community movement, as the Lord said he was about a work of restoration, he was pretty specific about the need to work specifically on this commandment of keeping holy the Sabbath. Work to understand it more. Work on how to express that understanding in the communal life that we have together. So we're going to take a few minutes to explore the commandment as it appears in Scripture. And also, uh, there's a few quotes from an apostolic letter that John Paul II wrote called Deus Domine, the Day of the Lord. So we'll, we'll touch on a few of those. Uh, would somebody be willing to read that Exodus 20 passage? Go ahead. Nice and loud. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and consecrated it. Thank you. All right, so we're going we're gonna to touch on a few key points from this passage. Uh, we're not going to, I'll just mention them now and then we'll get to them as we go. So remember the Sabbath day. The Lord commands us to remember the Sabbath. What are we supposed to remember? The Sabbath, right. But what, like, what are we, that was more rhetorical than, I, was, I wasn't seeking feedback necessarily, but good, way to, way to be on it. That was, way to stay with me, that was good. All right, so we remember the... Yeah, great, thank you. We keep it holy, right? What are we... Again, rhetorical question. We're keep, we keep it holy. What are we keeping holy? All right, you shall not do any work. The Lord says, don't do any work. What does that have to do with it? Why, why, why does he say that? Uh, the Lord himself is behind the meaning of the Sabbath. The origin of the commandment is grounded in who God is. 
So when we think about that, <clears throat> we'll go back to the creation account. Would somebody be willing to read that passage from Genesis 2? <clears throat> this is the rest. Pat, go ahead. Nice and loud. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed because on it God rested from all the work he had done in creation. So the seventh day, the Shabbat to the Jewish people, a day to cease and to stop and to rest like God did, as we just heard. So what does it mean that God rested? Does it mean that God took a break? Does it mean that he took a nap, he fell asleep? No, it doesn't mean that, right? Uh, somebody read the quote from De Staumene, please. Anyone? Kevin? It would be banal to interpret God's rest as a kind of divine inactivity. The divine rest of the seventh day does not allude to an inactive God, but emphasizes the fullness of what has been accomplished. It speaks, as it were, of God's lingering before the very good work, which his hand has wrought, in order to gaze upon it, in order to cast upon it a gaze full of joyous delight. This is a contemplative gaze which does not look to more accomplishments, but enjoys the beauty of what has already been achieved. That's a beautiful statement, isn't it? When we think about what are we what are we talking about here when we talk about divine rest? God lingered before the very good work. He cast upon it a gaze full of joyous delight, a contemplative gaze, which enjoys the beauty of what has already been achieved. That is a, that's really profound when we can sit and think about what does God rest actually mean? So God was looking upon what he had created seeing the goodness that he had fashioned. At its heart, divine rest is paying attention to, focusing on what the Lord has done, acknowledging that it's good and taking joy and delight in it. And and God's rest is a, a model for us. So we should think of that, that statement, about what God's, God's rest means and apply it to our lives. The Catechism in 2172 says, God's action is a model for human action. So God's rest should be a model for us of rest. So given our culture today and the world in which we live, <clears throat> what do you think, so when you think of what we just heard about God's rest, what do you think about uh, what's challenging that idea in our own lives when we talk about us imitating God in that rest? What, what, what are some of the challenges? Think about that for a minute and just, just shout them out. What's challenging us? Distractions. Distractions? Too much work. Expectations of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yep. What else? What, what, what keeps us from lingering on the goodness of the Lord. The need to always be doing something more. Doing, yes. <clears throat> Sweet. <laughs> Gets me out of bed. So we, there's many things. 
right? We could, we could fill pages, right? We have short attention spans. There ain't no lingering, right? I'm on to the next thing. I would say that there is a general lack of awareness or inattentiveness in the life in which we live and the culture in which we live. We're selfish, right? How can we reflect upon the goodness of who the Lord is when everything is so self-referential, right? I'm, I'm the core. It's all about who I am and what I'm about, right? The pace of life, somebody mentioned that. There's a loss of connection to the physical world that's around us, right? Nobody, nobody goes outside anymore. We need more stuff. Somebody said that. Right? We got to have more stuff, right? Because that's what's going to make us happy. So we should focus on stuff because that's what's going to make us happy. So it's talking about uh, probably a whole number of these, inattentiveness, lack of connection with the physical world. My wife and I had a chance to go to the Grand Canyon for our 15-year anniversary. It was great. The Grand Canyon is a, blue, a beautiful place, right? So you walk, you walk up to the rim of the Grand Canyon and you behold the goodness of the Lord. And then you see all the tourists there and everyone has a selfie stick. And they're getting their face in the Grand Canyon from all sorts of different angles, all right? So my face in front of the Grand Canyon. Isn't that awesome? No, it's my face. And that's the Grand Canyon behind me, but it's my face in the Grand Canyon. My face and my friend's face in front of, like, come on, just put, the, put your camera down and, and look and behold at what the Lord has done. So the meaning of the Sabbath. What is the meaning? The meaning of the Sabbath and rest is anchored in the fundamental truth about who we are. And who God is. Again from Deus Domine. The creation account is a story of intense religious significance. Pointing to him as the only Lord. In the face of recurring temptations. To divinize the world itself. The world is good insofar as it remains tied to its origin. So again what is the meaning of the Sabbath? It's tied to the relationship between who God is and who we are in God. As human beings, we know this. We didn't create the world. The Lord created it. We didn't account for creation. Right? It was here when we got here. We can't even account for ourselves. Right? We're completely dependent upon the Lord. He's our source of life. And creation is meant and it's designed to draw us to God, to our creator. So the Sabbath rest is intended to draw us back from work, busyness, distractedness, from doing stuff. So that we can see and pay attention to the greatness of what the Lord has done. To contemplate his greatness Acknowledge that he is our end and he is our source and he is our destination. The main purpose of the precept is not only, is not just any kind of interruption of work. Uh, Here's another great quote. 
but the celebration of the marvels that God has wrought. Insofar as this remembrance is alive and full of thanksgiving and of the praise of God, human rest in the Lord's day takes on its full meaning. So again, St. John Paul II is trying to speak to something here, isn't he? Again, he uses words like celebration, being alive, being full of thanksgiving and praise. So again, the goal of that commandment, the goal of the Lord's rest, resting in the Lord, is to set aside the Lord's day, to remember and to call into mind and be at awe of what the Lord has done. So I asked a a few different people to to share briefly. I'm going to invite Diana up to share, uh, talking about the the day of the Lord the Sabbath. She's going to share about her experience. So um, I think that us as a family, we as a family have celebrated the Lord's Day, I think from the beginning of our family, but it's just looked different as more kids have come in the picture, as we figured out what exactly Sabbath means for our family. From the beginning, it's meant that we don't do sports. That's a decision that we've made pretty early on because we had never found a sports team. I've since found out about them, but that doesn't do games on Sundays and that's not an option for us to have our family time be some kids on a field here and some of us over here and um, have to rearrange mass schedule and all of that stuff. So for our family, that is um, what we have chosen. And uh, like I said, it's, it's something that's had to look different. Um, just last weekend, we've said yes to some, something and afterwards went, we probably shouldn't have said yes to that, actually, because that meant some of us were somewhere else, and that wasn't okay. Because what we do as a family is, um, it's first of all, it's, it's really important. It's kind of funny when you're a homeschooling mom to say it's important for us to have family time. Every minute of our day is family time, but, minus Scott, but there's a different, there's a different tone to our house on Sabbath. It means that mom and dad actually sit down and make eye contact with you and play with you and have time to sit and actually breathe and our family because all families all households family or otherwise we're all busy we all have calendars that are fuller than they should be and on Sundays when that's our reset day that sets the tone then of okay we can go back into it on Monday Um, so like I said that looks different depending on what your household looks like but for our household it means we figured out that for us to have a restful day we have to actually shift when we go to mass 10.30 10.30 mass doesn't work for our family anymore, and I'm really sad because I'm not a morning person. But, but that it's, we want our goal for our Sabbath day to be restful and kind and <laughs> charitable. Then that means actually we have to, I have to get up earlier, and we all have to go to mass earlier. And the rest of the day is amazing just by that little change. And that's the goal for our family. And then as we have a, one that's growing older and we're seeing that, you know, he's not going to be in our home much longer, I've had a fantastic conversation with a woman whose kids are almost all gone, and she just said, your kids will remember that this is what they come back to, even if, as things change. And so it's that much more important for us to set aside at least this day that we have this time together as a family. And I've... Um, let me jump back a little bit. So the, the few things that look different in our household is that um, we don't do laundry, we don't do bigger chores. Uh, there are things that have to happen, like 
if someone comes downstairs and just admits that they hadn't thrown any of their clothes down the laundry chute for the last week and now no, don't have anything clean to wear, that's a necessary thing, right? But um, otherwise, it means that it's, it's a day set apart. We do our bare minimum chores to get through the day from Saturday night to Sunday night. And then after that, we all plug back in. But everyone knows that this is just the tone of our family for that day. Thank you, Dan. So the Sabbath rest, uh, I had the opportunity to travel to the Holy Land when I was in college and talk about being in a different culture and resting on the Sabbath. So so here you have a situation and we were staying in, in Bethlehem and we traveled to Jerusalem. You've got, in Bethlehem you're in, uh, so you, you've got the, the Muslim contingent. Right, So Islam, their holy day is on Friday, and then you move to Saturday, and the Jewish people are resting on Saturday, and then the Christians are resting on Sunday. So you, you can tell where, what day it is, if it's between Friday and Sunday, by what is absolutely not open on those days. So you look down the street, I remember distinctly it was a Friday, and we were, we were walking around, and this normally, which was a really busy street, they, they, all the windows were boarded. There was nobody on the street whatsoever as you were walking down the street. And then, uh, same thing on, you know, on Saturday, go through a Jewish part of town, nothing. So, I don't think we're going to go back to that, right? Again, that's not the, we're taking it all with us and nothing's changing, right? That's the way it used to be. Uh, but that should speak to something. That should speak to something for us. What is that? I mean, they take it seriously. They don't do they don't do anything. So, the Sabbath rest. So, enter Jesus Christ. All right, we're going to talk about the Lord's Day now. As Christians, fulfilling the third commandment by honoring the Lord's Day happens on Sunday, the day that Christ rose from the dead. The celebration of the Lord's Day is one of the most ancient rites in Christianity. <clears throat> when the early Christians gathered on the Lord's Day, uh, there they began a custom that was uh, it wasn't part of the broader culture, right? People didn't rest on Sundays, uh, but the Christians did. They understood that the Lord's Day uh, was the fulfillment of honoring the Sabbath, of keeping the Lord's Day holy. They tried as much as possible to uh, be free from work in order to have time for prayer and worship and fellowship. So this is from Dei Stomini. I'm just going to read the first part. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fundamental event upon which the Christian life rests. The fundamental event. Why is that? Why would you say, why would you agree with that? The resurrection. It changed everything. What did it change? It conquered the unconquerable. What else? What else? Amen. That which was dead has been brought to life. That which sin had destroyed uh, was destroyed itself. Right? The power of sin and evil, the power of the devil were broken. It was the day on which the source of life was opened to us to set us free, to set all of creation free from the bondage of corruption. 
There's a no, I'm not going to read these, all these. There's a number of great quotes from a bunch of holy saints. Uh, there's one from St. Gregory of, of Nyssa. The Lord's Day is given to us to keep alive our zeal for the way of life that God calls us to. That's great to hear that from a really old saint. The Lord's Day is a symbol of that day that is to come. The day that will have no evening. The sun will be no longer for the Lord will be our light. The Lord's Day is given to us to keep our, alive our zeal for the life that God has called us to. <clears throat> so a couple different uh, elements or expressions of the Lord's Day. One of those is joy. From Psalm 118, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. <clears throat> in the thought of the early Christian writers, uh, part of the purpose of the Lord's Day was to enter into the joy of that day. Right? We should experience joy and express joy when we realize that we have been set free from our sins. When we've been given a new source of life. That this life that's been given to us will never pass away. That God opened up a way for us to become new creations in Him and that we'll live forever in Him. So that's what joy is when we talk about the Lord's Day, right? In our modern culture, so this, this is a little bit of a tangent, we talk about emotions, right? So modern sensibilities. We have a, t- a hard time when we talk about <clears throat> this kind of objective approach to joy, that there are things that should make us joyful, right? We, we tend to understand joy as this kind of internal thing that's going on inside me, and that it's an emotion that operates more or less on its own, right? I can be joyful. I don't have to be joyful. If I'm not feeling it today, there's no joy. You know, we need to be true to our feelings, right? How many times have you heard that? I need to be true to my feelings. So if I'm not feeling joyful, you're not getting joy out of me. But the scriptures, and in most other cultures, actually, and certainly in other times, it was the norm that there's going to be situations or truths which in and of themselves should cause us joy. Right? It's, we read about, who, who read the gospel reading for today? Right? From, from, what was it, from Matthew chapter 15? All right? The prodigal son, the two parables preceding that, the woman who lost the, what, the coin, she went searching for it, and what was the, sec- what was the middle one? The lost sheep. Right? In all three of those parables, it says the person that found the thing, or the son that came home, they go to their friends and say, rejoice with me. Right? Be joyful with me. I found the coin. The sheep is back. My son came home. Right? Do you think the people in that day and age would say, you know, I'm, just, I'm not feeling it, man. I'm sorry. You can be happy for yourself, but I have no joy. Uh, because that's what my feelings are telling me. Right? That's, it's, it doesn't work that way. When we read the scriptures, they had a party, right? They were joyful because it was, it was something that should cause joy. And I think the Lord has, again, something to say to us in that. 
that there are, in fact, things, whether we feel it or not, again, let's try really hard to not be so self-referential, that it's all about what's going on inside my own heart and what I feel today. Right? Let's, let's let things move us to be joyful, as the early Christians did. Right? They may have been having a terrible day. Right? Their spouse just got sent off to the lions. All right? Whoa. All right? That's really hard to deal with. I would, I would be sad. Uh, but it's the Lord's day. And we can rejoice in who the Lord is. Maybe. Is that, was that too far? All right. How about this one? The, how about the threat... How about the threat of being arrested by the authorities? Is that all right? Can I make that leap? Is that okay? That's a little better, right? All right, never mind the martyrdom thing. That's, that's a whole separate category. The general tone and the threat of oppression and getting arrested, all right? That's a downer. But it's the Lord's Day, and we're going to celebrate with great joy, all right? So let's learn, let's learn a little bit from that. The Lord's Day. I'm going to help you out here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says this about the early Christians. For in a severe test of affliction, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy Boom. and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality. Joy. So be the Lord's day should cause us joy. So let's enter into that. So just in summary, we'll we'll be wrapping up here. The Lord's day is not mainly a day of inactivity or a day to pursue things. Outside of, uh, it's a day of, uh, we talked about this, a day of remembrance. A day of calling to mind the tremendous things that the Lord has done in creation, in redemption, and in the life that he has for us. It's a day to look upon the Lord and to offer him thanks and praise. The disciples of Christ are asked to avoid any confusion between the celebration of Sunday which should truly be a way of keeping the Lord's Day holy and the weekend understood as a time of simple rest and relaxation. Right? So they're, they're different. They're meant to look different. That's what the Lord intended. So one of the ways that, in our particular way of life, we have a pattern of honoring the Lord's Day for sure, but a particular pattern of uh, opening and closing the Lord's Day. So we're going to end with that. Again from Dei's Domine. Sharing in the Eucharist is the heart of Sunday. But the duty to keep Sunday holy cannot be reduced to this. In fact, the Lord's Day is lived well if it is marked from beginning to end by grateful and active remembrance of God's saving work. There it is again. Grateful, active, remembering. So one of the gifts of our pattern uh, is the, the opening of the Lord's Day celebration in particular. We use a set of prayers to open the Lord's Day as a way of entering into it uh, in a more deliberate and conscious way. 
Uh, this approach is helpful because it creates a certain break from Saturday afternoon to the beginning of the Lord's Day. It helps me, in particular, to set the day aside when I begin with the opening of the Lord's Day, to slam on the brakes, to take a breath, to think about the Lord, what He's done, that He's my source of life. Uh, this, this opportunity to open the Lord's Day is, is great relational time. Right? It's a great social time. Uh, it gives a structure for us being together. For families, it's, it's a part of building a family culture. Right? We have a family pattern of life. This is part of who we are as a family. Uh, it's a wonderful setting. The opening of the Lord's Day is a wonderful setting to invite guests into. Right? It's pretty low level, pretty low key. Uh, it's celebratory. You generally have a nice meal. You're thankful. Who's thankful anymore? Nobody's thankful anymore. That's another thing that we can remember and be thankful. Right? We talk about that in the Lord's Day prayers. Nobody is thankful anymore. So we have the opportunity to do that at least every week, to take time and to be thankful. Uh, for those with kids, it's a time to teach our children. Right? One of the things that, uh, if, you, if you have a copy of the Lord's Day prayers, you know, there's a time after we finish the first part, and <clears throat> before we do the reading, uh, there's a time for worship. So we're teaching our kids, uh, we're teaching ourselves about worshiping on the Lord's Day. Uh, and then we generally read, read a gospel or read a passage from scripture. Uh, and this, is, this would be an encouragement for the dads out there. This is an opportunity for you to, to teach your children about the scriptures. So take advantage of that. This is the one, one time every week where you, you stand between them and right, like bread and dinner and dessert. So take advantage of that to teach them. Ask them questions. Ask them what they heard in the passage that was read. Whatever. Uh, take advantage of that to teach. Again, it's a time to worship the Lord. Uh, it can be a, a more or less formal time. It doesn't have to be super fancy all the time. Uh, but generally, you have a nicer meal. You eat on nicer dishes. You might have a tablecloth on the table. Uh, you, you have wine and bread. Uh, so it should look different than a meal at any other time during the week, generally. Right? Sometimes it's pizza. I get that. Right? You have pizza and you hold up the piece of pizza for the bread and you know, a beer in the other hand for, for the wine. I get that. I understand. But in general, uh, it's an opportunity, as a, again, a way to set aside the day to say, no, this is special. It's different than any other day. Uh, it's the Lord's Day. And <clears throat> maybe you've experienced this as you've been trying to put this pattern on. It can be a challenge to stop and to open the Lord's Day. I get that. I am working on something, working hard to run the house, and things are a complete disaster. And I have to actually plan and think about, oh, I better actually have to clean this stuff up so it's not a complete disaster. Because we're going to stop and we're going to have opening the Lord's Day prayers. So, uh, encouragement for all of us to fight for uh, that time. To make it a priority in our lives. Uh, that we should be thinking about, again, going back to Paul's uh, letter to the early Christians in Rome. We should be thinking about this stuff. 
we should be thinking about how I'm going to approach the Lord's Day, uh, how the Lord wants me to approach it today, uh, how am I going to be in this active, joyful thanksgiving of rest. Uh, so encouragement to make it a priority and to fight for it. There's a, there's a reason why it's one of our practices, uh, because it's a true blessing. Maybe you've experienced the blessing of it to say, we're going to stop and we're going to set this day apart. Uh, it's a special thing. So encouragement to, to all of us to make it a priority and experience the blessing in that. Because uh, the Lord does have a blessing when we choose to give uh, the, the day back to him. All right. Uh, two, more, two more sharings. <clears throat> Josh, you want to share? Come on up. So the first time I did Lord's Day was in college. So at Steubenville, we had households, and as part of households, you, you did Lord's Day. So on Saturday, our group of guys, we would gather in a common room, and we would kind of share our hearts about what took place that week. Then we would do Lord's Day. Uh, then we would all go to dinner. And then that night, we would, we would hang out, uh, either just as, as us guys or with our sister household. And then the next day, we would get up, and we would go to Mass together. And we would, we would kind of commit that we weren't going to do any studying until you know, four or five or the next dinner time, which was fine because we weren't going to do it anyway. But that's just what we did. So it was, it was for the Lord, though. Uh, it was for the Lord. So it worked really well. But, but that, whole, that whole process kind of instilled in my, you know, in my life this order about taking that time and putting it aside. And when we got married and we you know, started having a family and started getting back into doing the Lord's Day as a family, kind of that carried over into it. You know, it's, it's prioritizing your time and just making sure that that time is set aside because it truly is, you know, starting it on the Saturday, it is preparation for receiving the Eucharist the next day. And it gives you as a family that time to really think about the meaning of your faith, the meaning of your life, your family, your friends. And while it is, it's nice on a lot of times to just have it with your spouse, have it with your families, there is something special, too, about celebrating it with another couple or another family, having them there to really feel that community element, um, uh, the, the discipleship that you're sharing together in, in participating in Lord's Day and, and the deeper meaning of it. So we've, we found it very valuable, including having small group and newly marrieds get together regularly and do those types of meals together, which has been a true blessing for us. So there you go. share a little bit. I had the joy of starting the process of, of incorporating Lord's Day into my life as well before I was married as a single. And I just want to share a little bit about that, that season of my life. And the gift for us as the women that I lived with to celebrate Lord's Day together and uh, to build that deeper relationship together and then to also have, have something in our life that we can invite other people into as a like, mission-oriented, as we've been talking about here. That was a great gift to me. I also, uh, I lived with the family when I was single and enjoyed being able to watch them in their family life have Lord's Day and, and enter into that and took advantage of trying to get into people's homes, <laughs> other families' homes, uh, as, as a single person. Um, 
celebrating the Lord's Day and getting to get to know people in a deeper way. So I was really grateful for that, the opportunity to have this kind of part of my life um, for so many years before, before getting married and having a family. Thank you, Josh and Betsy. Um, it's actually the end of the talk, so the end. <laughs>